Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of Chicago. Father David Anderson studied under Father Alexander Schmeyman at St. Vladimir's Seminary and was ordained in 1983. In addition to serving as a parish priest for 37 years, he has been both a teacher and a translator of patristic and Byzantine liturgical texts. He has presented many classes on liturgy and the Church Fathers throughout the country. He's presently the Byzantine Rite Chaplain at Wyoming Catholic College. Father David Anderson, it is so good to have you this evening. Thank you very much. Welcome, Father. If you can uh, lead us off in prayer, please. Yes, we will sing the Paschal Troparium from the Byzantine tradition. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Christos vos crece. Vistro vos crece. Christos anesti. Alithos anesti. El Messiah come. Hakan come. All right. It's a great blessing for me always to be with you. And I always look forward to opportunities to uh, speak about the Holy Liturgy uh, to whoever and wherever wishes to hear and, and to enrich their uh, not only appreciation of, but desire for a, a renewal of the liturgical life. And that renewal of the liturgical life is always, we could call it the heartbeat of the church, uh, to use the language that the fathers of the Second Vatican Council use, that the liturgy is the source and summit of the church's life. Uh, I will use an expression that precedes that one, in which we simply say that the liturgy is the church being herself. Liturgy is the church being the church. The liturgy is not an activity of the church. The liturgy is not even the number one top activity of the church. It's not in a list of things that the church does as important as some of those things may be. The proclamation of the word, the, the care for the sick and the poor, all these things are commanded by Christ, and they are central to the life of the church. But the liturgy is the church being constituted, being revealed as the church. So I begin there, and these two talks this week and next week are going to be a look at what are generally called the liturgical cycles, the liturgical cycles. The name to these talks uh, is taken from the Psalms. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. It's interesting that these verses occur in the great Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 50, David's Psalm of Repentance, that repentance and praise have an indivisible link, just as the seasons of repentance and praise have an in, indivisible link. We are in the Paschal season now. The great 50 days, uh, to which is added uh, seven more days beyond that in the Byzantine tradition, the season that the fathers of the church always called the crown of the year. Uh, every day in, for, for 40 days in the Byzantine tradition in which I live, we sing 
this is the chosen and holy day, the first of the week, the queen and lady of days, the feast of feasts, the festival of festivals. On this day, we bless Christ forever. And then another hymn, a very beloved one, those of you who are who are of the Latin tradition, and my assumption is that that's the, the majority of people that are listening to me this evening, you know, and I hope are very fond of the the Paschal hymn to the Holy Mother of God in the in the Latin rite, the Regina Celi. There is a corresponding hymn in the Byzantine rite, the Shine Shine. Uh, the words are Shine Shine, O New Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Exult now and be glad, O Zion. Be radiant, O pure Theotokos, pure Mother of God, in the resurrection of your Son. Now that those words that are inviting. The church, that the church is the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is the city of the living God, the city of the new creation, the final book of the New Testament, the apocalypse, ends with John seeing the marriage of heaven and earth. The New Jerusalem descends from heaven clothed in the glory of a bride, shining with the splendor of God. And we are told that all that belong to God, all who are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that is hopefully each one of us, that we have our home in the New Jerusalem. Now, that's not saying a small thing, because the New Jerusalem that does not end, where the sun does not set, where the light that knows no evening forever shines, to live in the New Jerusalem is to live inside of God. John sees in his vision in the apocalypse that in the New Jerusalem, there isn't any temple, no temple. For he says, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. God is the temple. And in that temple are all those who belong to him. So the address that is in store for all of us who are have responded to God's invitation to be recreated in the image of his son, to receive his eternal life, not only after we die, but now and forever, our address in the New Jerusalem is simply God. That is our home. And in this season in which we acclaim and rejoice in the new Jerusalem shining with the glory of God, we're saying that that's us. We're the new Jerusalem. And first among us human persons is the mother of the son of God, the mother of God, the one who gives God his human nature. So the church rejoices in this queen of seasons. It's the first season that the church celebrate for more than three centuries, there was only one liturgical season, special liturgical season, and that was the Paschal Pentecostal season, the 50 days. Actually, in the early church, the whole 50 days was called Pentecost, not just the last day. And so on the level of the year, one season, and on the level of the week, one special day set apart, the Lord's Day. So the Lord's Day is to the week as the Paschal Pentecostal season is to the year. Notice that Lent isn't there yet. It takes 300 years for there to be Lent. But from the beginning, there is the time that basks, we could say, in the light and the joy of the Lord's resurrection. And that reveals to us perhaps the most central spiritual truth about what we call the journey to God, the spiritual life. And that is that it is only possible to repent, to pass through the stages of purification and illumination, as the fathers say, to union with God. It's only possible to do that if one has received the joy of the Lord. That is to say that joy makes it possible to repent. If the joy is not there, one can go through the motions of repenting and repenting and repenting over and over and over again. But repentance of itself does not 
make it possible to attain the joy of the Lord. Rather, it's the other way around. The joy of the Lord comes first, and then one repents for longing of the fullness of that joy. Only one of the 12 apostles witnessed the crucifixion of Christ. That is the apostle John. The rest of the apostles of Christ did not see the crucifixion. They did not see the passion. They were hidden away, terrified. When the apostles replaced Judas with Matthias, following the ascension of the Lord, Peter said that the replacement for Judas had to be someone who had been with them since the days of John the Baptist, so had seen the Lord in the flesh, and also one to whom the risen Lord had appeared, one of those who had seen the risen Lord. Nothing said about being a witness of the passion, because if Peter had said that, he would have disqualified himself from being an apostle, since he did not witness it. Now, there's something to that, you see, to that and the fact that the season of joy came first before the season of repentance. Again, that central lesson is that the victory that overcomes the world, in the, in the words of John the Apostle, which is our faith, is the faith that was proclaimed on the day of Pentecost by the Apostle Peter in his first sermon, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah, Christ, and that is so because Jesus is risen from the dead. And where that, where that is clear and has been accepted with a willing heart, then the gospel flourishes. My teacher, Father Alexander Schwemann, used to say that the worst thing that was ever said about Christianity was said by the unbeliever Friedrich Nietzsche when he said, Christians have no joy. Christians have become dull and gray. It's no wonder that the apocalypse in the seventh letter of those seven letters says to the church of Laodicea that God wishes you to be either hot or cold, but there's nothing worse than being lukewarm. Being gray is worse than being black. Now, please God, none of us are gray or black. We are dazzling white, as the hymn from one of the offices for a couple weeks ago in the Paschal season says, clothed in robes of righteousness whiter than snow, let us rejoice in this present Paschal feast. So I start there in this look into the cycles of the church's liturgy uh, to show us that it is through time, through celebrating in time, using time not as, and, and some of you who have heard some of my other talks may remember this reference, using time not as some sort of fuel to be burnt up. Now that illustration comes from the great Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book, The Sabbath. Recommended reading, by the way. And in that little book, Rabbi Heschel says that the trouble with people especially now, not uniquely now, but especially now, modern people, is that we think of time as, as this fuel to be built, burnt up. And if we burn up the fuel of time, we can exercise our control over our little piece of space. That construct, which is a great deal, a, a great deal of it is our imagination about ourselves. That construct that we call my life my little solar system that I control with my little planets, people and situations and uh, revolving around me. And that we even think that, but well, we would deny that we do this, but, but of course we do it all the time with, with this little solar system worshiping me, the sun, and I control that. And I burn up the fuel of time to make sure that control is in place. One person can do this. Many peoples can do this. The great tyrannies of human history consist of doing this, burning up time to exercise one's lust for power and control. And in this, there is no place for God. When people do this, God cannot be heard. Even when people use the church, Especially, perhaps, when people use the church as a venue for burning up time to exercise control. That's perhaps the worst abuse. When people use the liturgy for some sort of self-centered 
gratification, and this can take many forms. The great scholar, patristic scholar, liturgical scholar of the West uh, in the 20th century, Romano Guardini, wrote many books, all very much recommended, prophesied back in the early part of the 20th century. He said that by the end of the 20th century, he predicted that people would no longer be capable of liturgical acts. And he's talking about people in the church, not talking about people outside the church. He said that people are increasingly so individualized. They think of the church and even the church's liturgy as some sort of uh, self-service store or filling station where where my religious needs can be met. The church is the place where the sacraments are manufactured for me. It's all me, me, me. And I never break out of this if, I, if, if that's how, what, what I've reduced the church and her life to. If the church is only there to satisfy my religious and even sacramental needs, it's just one more of the many versions of the Jesus and me deception. By that I mean that I have some sort of private little tete-a-tete with God. It's what we criticize the the more extreme examples of the Reformation tradition by uh, when when we criticize as Catholics, uh, those who reduce the Christian life to the Christian alone with Jesus alone or the Bible alone. Well, we better be careful that we're not doing the same thing. There is no relationship between the Christian alone and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ doesn't come alone because God is not alone. God is a communion of three divine persons living perfectly and completely in communion with each other. The divine persons, the doctrine of the church teaches us, do not need the creation. They don't create it because they need to. They don't create it for entertainment. They don't create it because they're bored in their divinity and need some unpredictable creation to liven up things. They don't create it because they're lonely. They don't need it at all. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to answer the question? I just think it's one of the greatest blessings. I I try to remind myself of it as often as I can, that I don't exist to serve some utilitarian need of God. I I exist, on the contrary, as an act of his bounty. I exist as an act of his excessive love that loves into existence the creation and everything in it. The liturgy of the church is the way that the church responds to and The church, therefore, makes present the reality of that Trinitarian love. As St. Irenaeus of Lyon says, just as the Son of God, Christ incarnate, is the sacrament of the Father, as he himself said, that he makes the Father known. He who sees me sees the Father. That doesn't mean that the Father and the Son are not distinct persons. They are distinct persons. Yet, nevertheless, the Son reveals the Father. No one has seen God, the Gospel of John says, the only begotten one who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And likewise, the church. So if the Son is the sacrament of the Father, then the church is the sacrament of the Son. And the church, by her life, and especially by the liturgy which makes her the church, because otherwise she's just yet one more human association, one merely human association. That's what people are trying to reduce the church into now, a a merely human association. Every time we profess the creed of the church, we say one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one holy church. We use the word one. I'm giving a series of talks on the creed now, and I mentioned to the the, uh, listeners last week that we use the word one four times in the creed. One God, one Lord Jesus Christ, one holy Catholic apostolic church, one baptism for the remission of sins. Use the same same sense in each time that in 
the one church, we have come to know the one God in the Trinity of Persons. So the liturgy is the way by which that presence of the living God and the eternal life that that living God has created, this very unusual creature called the human being, which St. John of Damascus says is a combination of loftiness and lowliness, having a nature that is both visible and invisible, and therefore capable to receive this destiny of eternal life. The liturgy reveals that. Now, in the sanctification of time, now my my teacher, Father Alexander Schmemann, always spoke of the sanctification of life and the sanctification of time. The liturgy of the church can be classified. We like to classify things, we humans. And there's some help in doing so. Helps us to understand better, as long as we don't take our classifications too seriously, but nevertheless. The sanctification of life, the sanctification of time. That means that the sanctification of time is using the chronological intervals of time as we measure them as not fuel to be burned to exercise our lust of power, but rather to enter by means of time into that which transcends time, from time into eternity, from the earthly to the heavenly. The fathers of the church who were so instrumental in devising the liturgy of the church were very insistent upon the liturgy of the church being a manifestation of the heavenly liturgy. Again, those of you familiar with the Latin rite, and the, therefore you know the, the first Eucharistic prayer of the Latin rite, the, and the oldest, the Roman canon, that prays after the consecration, that prays for the angel to take the Eucharistic offering to the heavenly altar, the heavenly altar, so that we may receive from that altar the holy body and blood of Christ, from the heavenly altar. There's only one altar. No matter how many churches there are, each with their altars throughout the world, there's only one altar. There's only one priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one sacrifice, his voluntary self-sacrifice for the life of the world. There's only one mass. There's only one communion. We say when we limit ourselves, reduce ourselves to chronological time, when chronological time, instead of being a window into eternity, becomes a dead end closed in upon itself, we say, oh, I've received communion thousands of times in my life. That's what appears on this side of things. But in reality, there's only one communion. Oh, I've been to the divine liturgy. I've been to the to the mass uh, so many times. There are so many times that there's so many so many masses, so many liturgies being celebrated in this city, in this church, in this place on a given day. That's what appears to be. But in the end, there's only one, only one. The heavenly sacrifice offered by the Lamb, whom Scripture describes, the Lamb of God, who is slain from the foundation of the world. The sacrificial death of the Son of God on the cross, which takes place historically on Good Friday in the year, probably the year 30, as best we can can calculate, is the manifestation of the eternal sacrifice of the Son of God who gives himself out of love for the life of the creation. And he does this in the fullness of communion with his Father and the Holy Spirit. So the sanctification of time is the means by which in time eternity is revealed. So the church always following the practice that she inherited from Israel, the church is the new Israel, has at the specific intervals of time, morning and evening, for example, during the night, during the day, of course, of course, you realize that I'm speaking of the hours of the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. That is the means primarily by which the church sanctifies time. And so time doesn't become a dead end or, or a fuel uh, burnt up to serve our lust for, for power over our space. 
but rather becomes like the painted icon, becomes a window into eternity. Now, I would submit to you that that experience of time is not only threatened, severely threatened in our time, but even in the consciousness and experience of most Christians have, um, has almost ceased to exist. The experience of sacred time, time whose purpose is to be the vehicle to convey eternity. We go to church, and in modern times, we have the central act of the church's liturgy, yes, the celebration of the Eucharist. We have it now at almost any time of the day or night imaginable. Uh, one has to remember that that is quite a modern development, that through nearly all of the history of the church, the, the Holy Eucharist, the Divine Liturgy, the Mass, was had its had its place at certain times that were determined by the cycles of the daily prayers of the divine office to sanctify time. It wasn't just celebrated any old time. It wasn't celebrated out of convenience. It was not celebrated, again, from the temporal perspective over and over again in a given day. If you were Let's imagine you are a pilgrim going visiting Rome in the fifth century, before the time of Pope Gregory the Great, Pope St. Gregory the Great. And, and so you're coming to Rome and you arrive there on Saturday evening. You've never been there before. And you go to a place that puts up pilgrims and you ask, where is, where is the nearest celebration of mass tomorrow? You know what the answer would be, don't you? I hope you do. Well, if you don't, you will now. There's only one, not only for, for a given church building, there's only one being celebrated in the entire city of Rome, at least up until the sixth century. It's the mass celebrated by the Pope in the stational church that he's going to be going to that day. And the congregation, however much of the population of Rome is going to be accompanying him there, will meet at a certain place, usually at another church. They will go in procession to the church of the day that's going to have the one mass singing the litany of the saints. That was the great processional hymn for the Roman tradition, singing litany of the saints. And they'll get to this church and there they'll have the one mass. Now, what's everybody else do? Because by this time, of course, this is sixth century, not fourth or third. Everybody in Rome virtually is a Christian. So what does everybody else do? Well, they gather in the other churches, of which there are many, but there are not masses celebrated there. It's not yet the tradition in the Roman church for a presbyter or a priest alone to celebrate the mass. Only one celebrated by the Pope. So in the other churches, they have the divine office, followed by a service of the word, the readings of scripture, maybe some preaching, and then they have to wait for the acolytes from the papal mass to bring the Holy Eucharist. Because again, there's only one mass celebrated. So different from our practice now of multiplication of masses at almost every imaginable time of day. Now, I'm not using this illustration to, to suggest that celebrating more than one mass from the temporal viewpoint in a day is wrong or anything. I just want to provide the contrast that worship liturgy in the early church was a whole cycle of services. Prayers at the various times of day, not restricted to ordained persons or monks and nuns, there's a great description of Sunday in Jerusalem in the fourth century, right after the persecutions ended, when the church could have public buildings for worship for the first time. And in Jerusalem, they could build them on the holy sites. And a pilgrim by the name of Agaria went there in the fourth century from Spain, she came and wrote a diary, a travel diary, everything she, she saw there. And she describes Sunday there. And she says that Sunday in Jerusalem begins 
a couple hours before cock crow. You know, when the rooster the rooster crows, sometime, just at the very beginning, the first, the first hint of dawn. And she says two hours before that, before they've opened up the, the church that we call now the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, then it would have been called simply the Church of the Resurrection. Before they open up the church, she says the courtyard is filled with people. These are not the clergy. The clergy don't come till later. <laughs> the bishop doesn't come till all the people and the, and the clergy are there. So, and what do the people do outside in the courtyard of the Church of the Resurrection on Sunday morning? They chant psalms and have prayers. In other words, this is one of the descriptions of the very first examples of the public celebration of the divine office. What has come to be known now as matins or, or vigils, uh, followed by morning prayer or lauds or throats. And then, finally, people go into the church building when the bishop has arrived, because you don't just go into the church building casually. The bishop leads his congregation, his flock into the church. And then they have the celebration of the Eucharist. And the whole thing isn't over till noon. So large numbers of people now, certainly not everybody has been there since two hours before Cockrow, but large numbers of people have experienced this large chronological interval of time as holy time. You see the point that I'm making? Holy time. It's not simply the quick and easy and practical and utilitarian distribution of sacraments. It's a long interval of time which makes it possible if one gives oneself over to it. Of course, if one resists it, there's not much one you can do. But if one gives oneself over to it, it enables one to experience the reality of time in a different way from how we experience it in the world of duties and labors and responsibilities. Not that there's anything wrong with those duties or labors or responsibilities. The only time that the problem arises is when they become ends in themselves. And the trouble is that for most people now, since not, not just recently, but perhaps we could say since the days of the Industrial Revolution, they have in fact have become ends in, their, in themselves to the point where they exclude the experience of sacred time. But so much of the church's liturgy is the sanctification of that time. There is a great Benedictine uh, liturgist, abbot of Maria Lach in Germany, uh, Odo Kassel, who used the analogy of a flower when describing the liturgical services of the church. He said, yes, yes, the Eucharist is the flower, but flowers don't exist, he says, without their roots and their stems and their leaves. Beautiful, beautiful illustration. And the roots, the stem, the leaves of the church's liturgy is this ongoing sanctification of the intervals of time by prayer and psalmody. So what I'm saying in many words is that the renewal of the church's liturgy must always begin, must always begin with the increased reality of participation of people in what we call the divine office, the liturgy of the hours. And when there is a proper concern for that, then the possibility, once again, to experience time as an entrance into eternity, time that is made holy, is possible. So the first aspect of the sanctification of time is the hours of prayer that have, are part of the church's inheritance, again, from Israel, and should not in any way be considered secondary or extra, or maybe some people have the time to do that. Rather, they need to be the foundational support of the 
sanctification of life, which comes from the Eucharist. Now, we'll speak next week of the sanctification of life. There's some more things uh, today, uh, this evening, for the sanctification of time. These cycles of time, liturgical cycles, generally four of them are spoken of. The first, let's start with the one that is most basic. The first is the weekly cycle of the Lord's Day, that the experience of Sunday, and Sunday is something that was intended by the church to be experienced. The experience of Sunday that has been there, when? Since the day of the resurrection. The experience of Sunday that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus experienced when the risen stranger came with them and walked with them, who ha- and they had given up hope in him. We had hoped, they said to him, that Jesus of Nazareth would be the one to have redeemed Israel. We hoped that, speaking in the past tense, they said. So the hope isn't there anymore. They'd heard in Jerusalem that morning of the reports of the women. And even that the apostles went to the tomb and saw it just as the women said it was. But the two disciples say they haven't seen, they didn't see him. The disciples didn't see him, not yet. Well, he's with them. And they walk along the way on this journey about seven miles to the town of Emmaus. And as they walk, he opens the scriptures to them. That is to say, he shows First, first of them, he first of all, he calls them fools. The Lord doesn't spare words sometimes. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. I'm sure he didn't say it cruelly, but realistically. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning in Moses and all the prophets, the Gospel of Luke says, he spoke to them of the things concerning himself as they walked on the road. And he in fact, revealed to us through them that the way to understand the Holy Scriptures, and here we're speaking, of course, of the law and the prophets and the Psalms, or as we like to say now, the Old Testament, though I think Pope Pope Emeritus Benedict is right. We say that too much. It's not that it's bad because it's used in the New Testament. The expression is used in the New Testament once. But the, the other way of, of speaking of the, the scriptures of the first Israel, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's how the Lord, that's the expression the Lord uses. And we would do well to use it too. The trouble with calling it the Old Testament all the time is that that endangers that old, uh, unfortunately, in our, in our culture, old has the connotation of, of being worn out. There are other cultures in the world where on somebody's, 60th birthday to compliment them as if they were 70 is a real compliment, you see, not in our culture. So uh, the, the trouble is that old, that word, not only worn out, but kind of obsolete, you know, the obsolete testament. <laughs> but the Lord says that all of that, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, it's all about me, all about me. And as he speaks to them, they are going to say later, that their hearts start to burn. They don't know why. Then they get to Emmaus and they beg him to stay. By the way, one of the most beautiful liturgical features of the, uh, in the Latin, the Latin rite, in the Liturgy of the Hours, in Vespers, is that, at least in the traditional form, every day at Vespers, there used to be sung uh, those words of the two Emmaus disciples. Abide with us, O Lord, for it is nearly evening. It used to be with Alleluia's, abide with us, O Lord, Alleluia, for it is nearly evening, Alleluia. It joined us with them every day during Paschal time in the, in the Latin rite for evening prayer. So at evening they go in and, he's, and he takes his place at table with them. And we know, of course, the story is well known, well beloved. He blesses the bread, breaks, gives. And in that moment of time, their eyes are open because their eyes were held, the gospel says. Their eyes were open and they recognize him. And at the moment they recognize him, his visible presence vanishes. 
exquisite, exquisite. Only, only God could reveal himself in such a way. And then they say, did not our hearts burn while he talked to us? And then what do they do? They get up and it says they hastened, hastened back. Back to Jerusalem they go. And when they get there, they found that the risen Lord has appeared to the disciples. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's the experience of the Lord's day. What the Emmaus disciples and the apostles in the upper room experienced. Then they got, they got it again eight days later, this time with Thomas. I've always wondered what Thomas was up to on the first Easter when he wasn't there with the rest of the disciples in the evening. Thomas always was kind of the odd man out. You know, he says uh, the three times that he speaks in the gospel, all rather unusual. I said, I, I remember saying in my homily that on Thomas Sundays, we call it the second Sunday of the Paschal season. Thomas is somewhat like Eeyore, you know, Eeyore the donkey. <laughs> Jesus is going uh, back to Jerusalem uh, or back to the Jerusalem area to Bethany. Lazarus has died. And Thomas says, let us go to that we may die with him. Jesus is speaking to the disciples after the Last Supper and says, where I'm going, you know, and you know the way. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The third word of Thomas in the gospel is not like Eeyore. When Jesus says, bring your finger here, bring your hand here, reach your hand here, literally says in the, in the Greek, and thrust it, says Jesus, into my side. And be no longer unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responds with the most explicit confession of faith that is found in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. And we know Jesus' response. You believe, Thomas. Jesus acknowledges that Thomas has faith. Now, you believe, Thomas, because you have seen. But those who believe who who have not seen are more blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's us. It's all on the Lord's day. All on the Lord's day. John at the beginning of the apocalypse says, I was in the spirit in the Lord's, on the Lord's day when he was a prisoner in a penal colony on the island of Patmos during the reign most probably of the Roman emperor Domitian, who was the first one. I mean, the Roman emperors had affected some sort of divine prerogatives up to this point, but it was Emperor Domitian who called himself explicitly Lord and God. And a penal colony was begun on the island of Patmos for those who would not acknowledge him as such. John is in that penal colony, and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I, and I opened my eyes, and I saw the Lord in glory, and I fell down at his feet as a dead man. And the voice said to me, I was dead, but I live forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. John will say later in a vision, I saw it's, it's full of apparent contradictions that, that time and sight can't resolve. I saw a lamb standing as if he were slain. Slain animals don't stand. <laughs> but this one, I saw, I, I saw the lamb standing as if slain. All of this, again, it, it's on the Lord's day. And that, so the Lord's Day is not simply a liturgical obligation to be fulfilled. It even cannot be reduced to a sacrament to be received. It is a corporate experience of the church in worship to be had. And unless it is that for the children of the church, it remains a a reduction, a shadow of what it's intended to be. So we have of these cycles of time, we have the cycle of the Lord's Day. Then we have the cycles, the second one, of the weekdays. And the weekdays have been given various significances from actually very early times, even from apostolic times. From the first century, the writing of the Didache, for example, the, the, it's called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Didache. In the Didache, there's a description of early Christian worship and practice. And it says that our fast days, it says we don't fast on the days the Pharisees fast. The Pharisees fast on Monday and Thursday. We fast on Wednesday and Friday. Why Wednesday and Friday? Well, because it's, it's a conformity to the days associated with the Passion. The, Lord's, the Lord is betrayed. That is, the Judas makes his agreement with the chief priests and gets the money. 
on the day before the Last Supper, so that's Wednesday. And then the Lord suffers and dies on the cross on Friday. And then all of the early uh, descriptions of fasting in the church say on that day we fast till the ninth hour, the hour of Jesus' death. So the weekdays become, in, the, in this case, Wednesday and Friday, become vehicles, entries into holy time. Saturday is given a particular significance in time. Saturday, which is, of course, the old Sabbath, as a day of prayer for the dead in the Byzantine tradition, and so forth. Uh, one could go on a little more about that. But So the Lord's Day, the cycle of the weekdays, then the cycle of the feast days, or we could call the annual cycle, the things that come once a year, the great feasts of the Lord and the Mother of God. Or we could say more specifically, those that have a fixed date, a fixed date in the monthly calendar. The feasts of the Mother of God, the Lord, and the saints, as, as more and more saints were honored. Each one of these is an invitation to transcend, not to discard, but to, to transcend the daily routine and rise up to the reality of the eternal life that the Lord has revealed through his birth, through his baptism in the Jordan, through his transfiguration on Mount Tabor, through his ascension. And the... the birth and, and the Annunciation and the Dormition of the Mother of God, the great feasts of the Apostles and then the other saints. They are opportunities for communion with these realities. And then finally, so we have the weekly, or the or rather the Lord's Day, weekly cycle, the cycle of the weekdays, the cycle of the monthly feasts, and then the Paschal, the Lenten Paschal cycle which is, is of a variable date every year, still having a connection to the, the, the computation of the uh, date of the, of the Passover, which there's kind of amusingly never been an agreement upon, not even in the days of the old Israel. <laughs> and so this year, it's uh, depending on whether one is using the newer date or the older date. It's four weeks apart. Our, uh, many, most of our, most all of our Orthodox brethren, and even uh, a great many of the Eastern Catholics in other parts of the world outside of North America, are all having Holy Week this week. Even some Latin Catholics are having Holy Week this week. The ones that live where the population is overwhelmingly on the old calendar also keep the old calendar date. So the Paschal cycle including Lent, including the Ascension and Pentecost, including the Sundays after Pentecost, in which the central act of our salvation that I began this talk with, the emergence of the new creation from the tomb, the transformation of the body that the eternal son of God takes upon himself in his incarnation, the, trans, the transformation of that body into that which death cannot touch. And therefore, we say, we, we love this on, on, on Easter morning, we, we still use in the Eastern churches, the old word Pascha, which most languages of the, of the world use to refer to the day of the resurrection. In, in the Byzantine tradition on Pascha morning, we read the sermon of St. John Chrysostom, in which he says, Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the tombs. Now, if you are living only on the level of chronological time as an end in itself and as a fuel to be burned up for, for one's exercising uh, one's, one's authority over space, it's a meaningless statement. And, and, and any skeptic will tell you, we can go to any cemetery in the world and the tombs are full. Christ is risen, says St. John Chrysostom, and not one dead remains in the tombs. How can he say it? He says it because the humanity, the human nature, that rises to a life that death cannot touch anymore in the resurrection of Christ is our humanity. It's not some other kind of humanity. The person, the divine person, of the Son of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has taken upon himself our humanity. And in that humanity, he rises and ascends to the Father, 
And therefore, all of us, those of us who believe in him, rise with him. So the first fruits of the resurrection, as St. Paul says, Christ, the first fruits, and then the later fruits were the later fruits, but we are united to the first fruits. And because it's in that in his resurrection, it's our humanity that is risen, we can truly say Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the tombs. Now, this is what the liturgy is intended to manifest. It's not intended to be a utilitarian means of fulfilling religious ob obligations. It's, it's not meant to be a sacramental convenience store or filling station. It's not meant to be some sort of satisfying of individual religious needs. Now, sure, we need the sacraments. Sure, we do. But to reduce what is meant to make manifest the coming of the kingdom of God to within creation, within the creation that God has created, to be the setting. God, why does God create creation if he doesn't need it? He does it so there is a realm of existence that's not that's not divine insofar as it hasn't always existed. It's called out from nothingness into being. A realm of existence in which he who is the source of everything that is good and true and beautiful and wonderful and perfect, all, all love and all communion, so that within that creaturely realm, his divine life can be experienced. The purpose of the Christian liturgy and the cycles of worship and the sanctification of time is to manifest that, to make it known to people living in time. That's what the church is for. That's what constitutes the church. And it's that that I wanted to speak, however briefly and, and however imperfectly uh, this evening. So I thank you. Wow. Father Anderson, thank you so much. Let's get started with some questions that are coming in here. We've got one from Chris. It says, Father, what book titles would you recommend to reinforce what you have been speaking of? Okay, I can I can think of three from the beginning, although there are there are uh, many others. The first one would be uh, two books with the same title uh, called "The Spirit of the Liturgy." And, and you know, of course, Pope Emeritus Benedict has written uh, the second book with that title, and he used the title deliberately because Romano Guardini wrote the first book with that title. So I would suggest both of those. I would also, uh, for exposure to the, the unique perspective of the Eastern churches, I would refer you to Father Alexander Schmemann's book, For the Life of the World. If you read For the Life of the World, uh, you'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to accept that Father has some criticisms to make of Christianity in the West. <laughs> the book isn't about that, but it does enter into the book. So uh, don't don't uh, get bent out of shape by it. It's uh, a singular book, and and I would say, for anybody wanting a deeper immersion in the liturgical life, a central one. And then the one that I the one that I mentioned uh, earlier when quoting Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, his book The Sabbath, from an Orthodox Jewish perspective, but nevertheless. In that perspective, such a rich conveyance of the sanctification of time, uh, another one of, one of kind. So those, those, those are three recommended titles for starters. There are, of course, many others. Lester, I see you have a question. Go ahead. Uh, I don't want to go into too much speculation, Father David, but I was told that Father Alexander wrote for Life of the World in English for one audience and Russian for his audiences back in Russia. That was one, per I read one comment with some online contests that the Russian edition had a different audience in mind and he had a different message. Which is true, which is true. Yet, yet as as you will see now, I mentioned, I, I mentioned some of uh, Father's criticisms of, of developments in the West. He doesn't spare the East either. 
but it's not it's not simply a book of, of criticism but some of the criticisms are are necessary I think and you know I, I have to admit that in in my presentation this evening I made certain criticisms as well it, it all has to do with this reducing liturgy to to utilitarianism you know um how about a just a commentary on liturgy and life I think the subtitle was Christian development through liturgical experience. Which which between that and for life of the world would you read in a specific order? If Liturgy and Life is, is uh, all, I would recommend all of his books. Of course, I'm a student of his, but I would I would follow the the what has become to be the traditional order of for the life of the world first. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And as I saw you had your hand raised, go ahead and take yourself off the mute. Father, as you were talking uh, about the sanctification of time, it came to my mind the episodes of um, the two of the prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, mm. at the time of the ninth, at the ninth hour, and also of Peter in relation to Cornelius. Is that related to the sanctification of time, or am I well, totally? No, no, you're completely right. Completely right. If especially in the Acts of the Apostles, note the number of times that the hours of prayer are mentioned. Mm -hmm. In the in the third chapter of Acts, when when Peter and John, it's the first miracle after after the, after Pentecost, where where uh, by the name of Jesus, someone is healed. Yes. They're going to they're going at the third hour to prayer. Mm -hmm. Then that which is of course now. What the third hour means, of course, this is this is not even a, a Jewish expression. It's a Roman expression. But the Jews are living under Roman rule. So the Rome divided the day into four four pieces. The, the, by day, I don't mean 24-hour day. I mean the daylight. Mm -hmm. So depending on what time of the year. So, it, of course, begins at, at sunrise, first hour, then when the sun is halfway up to its zenith, third hour, all the way up to its zenith noon, halfway down at the ninth hour, and then sunset. Mm -hmm. So it means that, so the prayer of the third hour be around nine o'clock in the morning. Notice also that uh, the, it is mentioned that the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles at Pentecost mm -hmm. takes place at the third hour. Mm -hmm. And that's why, and that's why in the divine office, both in the Roman and Byzantine traditions, always there's an invocation to the Holy Spirit at the third hour or terse, or sometimes they just call it now mid-morning prayer. Uh, then when with, uh, no, in fact, I, I'm, I, I was actually wrong there. Uh, Pentecost, yes, at the third hour. Peter and John are going up for the ninth hour, but still, it's it's that is another hour of prayer. And of course, it, it, the ninth hour is mentioned as being the hour of Jesus' death as well. Uh, when when Peter is having the vision about uh, that's going to lead to the beginning of the conversion of the Gentiles with Cornelius the Centurion, he has gone up on the rooftop of where he's staying to pray at the sixth hour. So that shows us that these hours of prayer at regular intervals are kept since the apostolic age. And even before that, they are kept by, by Jewish practice as well. Father, Lisa asks um, if you could uh, comment further on, on what you had to say about making the liturgy all about me. Mm -hmm. um, she asked, what does that look like on a practical level? I'm not sure I understand the the primary purpose now for for many things you know there's a primary purpose then there are secondary purposes or or derived purposes it's not that the secondary ones are bad or, or are to be ignored but when when trouble when trouble comes is when the primary is replaced by the secondary so what is the primary pur purpose of the liturgy? Primary purpose of the liturgy is to partake through time of that which is beyond time in the context of the gathering of the church. And I'm using that word deliberately because the Lord himself says that he has come to gather those who are scattered right? 
when we come to church, the first liturgical act is this gathering of those who are scattered and in, in their scatteredness. What does it mean to be scattered? Does it just mean that we all live in our own little, little place? Uh, although that's part of it. But it also means that as to the extent that we self-define who we are, that's the difference, by the way, between the two words, individual and person. People use those words as if they are synonyms. They are not synonyms. A person is defined relationally with others. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the divine persons. In fact, what is absolutely clear about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that they are not independent beings. If they were, we would be tritheists, as the Muslims would accuse us of being, having three gods, three independent persons. No, rather, they are inter-persons in communion, relational persons, in, in the perfect divine sense. And we've been created to be the same. The effects of, of sin, both original and subsequent, have broken that communion, both with God and each other. Christ has come to restore it. And so he gathers and transforms us from being isolated, limited individuals to being his body. So there is a double transformation that occurs at the liturgy. And most particularly, we'll speak about this next week, most particularly in the Eucharist. Because, again, you ask, you ask people, what is the Eucharist? Well, they will tell you that the Eucharist, if they are Catholics or Orthodox, uh, Eastern or Western, they will tell you that the Eucharist is the transformation of what the church offers, the bread and wine, into the body and blood of Christ, which it is. But that's not all it is. It's also the transformation of the offerers, those who offer, because we offer Christ's own offering in communion with him. In the Byzantine liturgy, for example, in both the liturgies of Chrysostom and Basil, which are the two liturgies which we celebrate nearly all the time, in the Eucharistic prayer, the anaphora, the consecration, the priest prays, send down, O Lord, your Holy Spirit. This is the prayer of the Apoclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit, who is the giver of life. Send down your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts here offered. Not only on these gifts here offered, but on us. And notice that the us comes first. And so the Holy Spirit transforms the scattered into the gathered in Christ, just as the Holy Spirit transforms the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood. And that is at least a beginning of trying to put into words what is the primary purpose of the liturgy. A sec secondary or, divide or, or, or derived purposes of worship generally tend to focus on one's own spiritual state, one's own expressions of devotion, one's own perceived relationship with God. And some, and I'm not, and again, I'm not saying that these things are, are in any way bad. They can be bad though when they become ends in themselves. And individualized piety can become a very bad thing, something that does not lead to greater love of God and neighbor. Remember that some of the worst things in the world have been done by religiously pious people. Christ, Christ was crucified, yes, by, by Romans did it, but they did it because pious priests wanted it. They were pious priests simultaneously with being corrupt priests. That kind of false piety for one's own sake can become the fuel for a very corrupt expression of religion. As, you know, there's a Latin uh, saying, uh, corruptio optima, pessima est. The corruption of the best is the worst. Or as uh, C.S. Lewis says in a much more earthy way, uh, lilies that stink smell worse than weeds. <laughs> Meaning, you know, the, uh, if you ever deal with flowers in the church, 
Uh, and I do it here personally in our chapel at Wyoming Catholic College. They're very nice at the beginning, especially all the nice Paschal flowers. They don't stay that way. They start to because, of course, uh, <laughs> they're part of the fallen creation and they start to rot. And you get them out before they start smelling like that. So uh, that, that that is the trouble with reducing liturgy to one's own uh, one's own expressions of, of piety. That, that I don't mean that it's all corrupt like that. I'm not. I'm not in any way intending to say that that people's personal devotions are bad. Some of them are very beautiful and wonderful and and full of depth. But they're not the primary purpose of the liturgy. The primary purpose of, of liturgy is the share in the transfiguration the, the, of all creation in Christ. So I become, so to put it simply, I become part of something much larger than, than this, this little bit, uh, my, my little life, even my little religious life. You see? Absolutely. We'll get you out of here on this one, Father. Um, this is from Sue, but a couple of people have have asked similar questions. How would you recommend a lay person approach the liturgy of the hours? Is it reasonable to pray those parts that, quote unquote, fit into your daily life of, of work and family? Sure it is. And and that's what that's what most people have to do. And even even I as a priest, now I have a very I've actually a very wonderful situation here as as the chaplain at Wyoming Catholic College, because uh, I do parts of the office uh, every day in the chapel, and there are always people to join me in doing it. The reason why I got here so late is that we had Vespers at five o'clock, and as there always are, there was a nice group of students there with me. So I have that I have that luxury, let's say. But there are, there are also times of the year where, where you know those those students aren't here. Or at times in my life when I haven't had necessarily the presence of others to pray the office with me. So I so I do it in what appears to be by myself. But remember, we're never alone. I, I would encourage in all of its forms, anywhere and any way, when people can get together in all of the distinct rites of the church, when people can get together to pray the, the, the divine office. And and to search out search out those possibilities to the extent that it is possible for one. That's awesome, Father. Would you uh, end us with a prayer and your blessing? Yes, I will. And and today, by the way, beginning tonight, tomorrow, Wednesday, is a day that is the day that we call in the Byzantine tradition mid Pentecost. It's the halfway point between Pascha, Easter, and Pentecost when we begin to pray uh, most explicitly for a share in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I'll sing one of the hymns that for the the troparion for mid Pentecost. In the middle of the feast, O Savior, till my thirsty soul with the waters of piety, for you cried out to all, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. O Christ God, fountain of our life, glory to you. God is with us through his grace and love for mankind, always now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.